Well, I'd now like to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 19. And we will continue our studies in uh, the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And he is um, now at Ephesus. Let's see here. There we go. And what I'd like to do as we uh, kind of begin to look at this passage together this morning is to uh, briefly uh, review uh, just a couple of the slides we looked at last week about the city of Ephesus. So we will uh, work on, on that. And until we get there, let me uh, begin by reading for you Acts chapter 19. And I'll start reading in verse 11. And we'll read down through verse 20. So as I'm reading God's inspired word, please give careful attention to the reading of God's holy scripture. Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick. And the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who in the world are you? And I've added a few words in there. And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. And may God bless the reading of His word. Okay, so what we're looking at uh, again is the ancient ruins of Ephesus. And you can see again uh, the great uh, theater that we looked at last week. You can see the the great colonnaded road, the harbor road that led out to the harbor. This is the way it would have probably looked like back in the first century. Not so today. It's all been silted in, remember. But back then, the water came right up to the edge. And Ephesus was the third or the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire at this time. Well over a quarter of a million people lived there. It had this port 
which linked it to the sea, which made it very rich, very important for commerce, trade, and travel. And of course, it also had that um, amazing temple to Artemis. And you can see again, basically, the outline of the ancient city, the temple of Artemis up at the top. A very important, profound city, just a lot of traffic, a lot of industry, and a lot of religion, and a lot of the occult uh, existed at Ephesus. You can remember, again, a model of what the uh, Temple of Artemis uh, looked like. It was larger than a football field in its basic size. 175 marble pillars rose 60 feet up into the air to support a spectacular ceiling underneath that was inlaid with gold and rare gems. And then in the very center of this would have been the shrine, the holy shrine where the the object, the, the statue, the image of the goddess Artemis or Diana would have been preserved inside the middle of, of the temple. They believe that fell from heaven as we'll read later on Uh, next week, Lord willing. But Artemis was a goddess of fertility, a goddess of hunting, a goddess of a lot of different areas. But she was really kind of the social cultural glue of Ephesus. Uh, She had tremendous power. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was this temple. So it drew an incredible amount of um, tourism to the city. There was a lot of uh, sexual immorality, of course, that went with that and the worship of other gods. And not only did they worship Artemis, who was really the, the queen of all the gods in this area, but there were about 50 other gods and goddesses that were worshipped in Ephesus. So, a lot of religion, a lot of the occult, a lot of satanic activity going on uh, within the city of Ephesus. In fact, one month out of the year, the city officials would dedicate the entire month to be set aside in honor of the goddess Artemis. And they would do all kinds of celebrations. They would have athletic games uh, in the different fields and stadiums around the city. Uh, The theater would have plays and concerts and great crowds all in the worship of Artemis. So this was a, a, a hugely important a religious center in the whole area. And again, because of that, Ephesus was saturated with the occult. And this made Ephesus a breeding ground for superstition and magic and the dark arts of Satan. So again, all of this was taking place within the city of Ephesus. Back to just a, an overview of some of the ruins uh, that they've uncovered. This is maybe a third of what, what's there. Now into this stronghold of darkness comes the light of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's an ongoing battle, of course, between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And this battle was very intense. And of course, that battle is still going on today, isn't it? The kingdom of darkness around us and the kingdom of light the kingdom of Christ, the gospel, the word of God. There's an ongoing battle today as it was way back in the days of the Apostle Paul. And of course, today Satan continues to marshal all of his pawns and bishops and knights and rooks to advance his, his evil kingdom. He's using politics 
to do that. He's using education. He's using uh, religion. He's using globalism. The one world government. All that is, is Satan propelled and Satan motivated. And of course, he wants to quench the light. He wants to subdue the voice of the church. He wants to suppress the gospel today just as he did back then. But his defeat, Satan's defeat, is, is of course certain. The serpent of old is great, but the king of kings is greater. And we are in that battle today, but the ultimate victory belongs to Christ and His church. I love it when John, who lived at Ephesus later in his life, wrote and said, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. 1 John 4.4 Overcome them, that is the false prophets of the Antichrist, because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. And Paul would later say that wherever sin increases, grace abounds all the more. So that ultimately the triumph belongs to us. And Paul will also write that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We're living in a battle now. We're against real enemies who want to defeat us. And sometimes we, we experience temporary defeats, but the ultimate victory belongs to Christ and the church. Christ will build His church and the gates of hell will what? Not prevail against it. So whatever the kingdom of darkness does, and it will have temporary victories, but the glory of Christ and His kingdom will prevail. And I love the way Martin Luther so powerfully wrote it in his great hymn when he says, And though this world with devil's fills should threaten to undo us, we shall not fear for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail Him. And that captures up the biblical hope and confidence that we should have of the triumph of the name of Jesus Christ over the kingdom of darkness. So what we're going to see in our passage this morning is again this mighty battle being played out in Ephesus. But we're going to see the power of the name of Christ triumphing over the false religion and the occult within the city of Ephesus. And as we see this, it will encourage us that though we are in our own individual battles, and sometimes we lose those battles, the triumph of Christ will ultimately prevail. His grace is greater than all our sin. And that's the encouragement that I hope we can draw from this passage. Well, let's uh, begin to look at this. If you look at verse uh, 11 and 12, we see that the triumph of God's grace in Christ over the curse. So in verse 11 again, we read that God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick. And the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. 
So both diseases and demons are being defeated by the ministry, the power of God through the Apostle Paul. Now several things about this. Notice how Luke, who's a physician, who has seen a lot of miracles, a lot of healings by the hands of the Apostles, particularly Paul, describes these as extraordinary miracles. Now all miracles are supernatural. But what Luke is writing here is that these go above and beyond the typical miraculous healings and and exorcisms that, that we normally see from Paul. These were a cut above. They were extraordinary. These are out of the ordinary miracles. So this, this is something quite amazing. Now later on, Paul will write, um, when he's in prison in Rome, he'll write a letter to the church at Ephesus. And he'll say, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. He may be referring back to some of these incredible miracles that God did through him. But notice that they were taking handkerchiefs and aprons from the Apostle Paul, taking them out to sick people and demon-possessed people, and they would be healed and the demons would be cast out of them merely by having a handkerchief or an apron from the Apostle Paul. Now this, this is part of the extraordinary miracle. You can compare this with the woman who come and touched the hem of Christ's robe and was healed. Uh, you can, you can uh, compare this with uh, back in Acts chapter 5 where Peter's shadow fell on people and they would, they would get healed. I mean, these are extraordinary. These are not the typical miracle and healings that the apostles did. But here they would take his handkerchiefs and his aprons. Now, th- what, what are these things referring to? Well, the handkerchief and the aprons was what Paul wore and used in his tent-making vocation. In other words, the handkerchief was basically a sweat rag. It was something you would tie around your neck or keep in a pocket someplace. And when you're in that, that, that uh, shop making tents and you're hot and you're sweaty, you take that rag out and you wipe the sweat off your face, your neck, the back of your, your head, all these things. That's the handkerchief. It's a sweat rag. And the apron was the apron he wore to protect himself from all the dirt and all the working with with all the leather and all the different materials that he worked, and it would probably get maybe punctured or dirty at times. But they would take these common objects out to sick people, and God would use it as a means of healing them. Quite amazing. Dirty, smelly, sweaty. And yet God was using these objects to bring about miracle healings and exorcisms. And again, what they were doing were sick people, diseases, which is the result of the curse of sin. Remember, all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, the curse fell on the world. And that's why we get sick and that's why we die because of the curse. So the curse is being lifted up. And then the Satan, of course, was the one who, who tempted Eve in the garden. He was the one who basically brought about the curse through his own temptation. And now he's being defeated. He's being cast out. His kingdom is being, is being uh, undermined. 
And yet God is doing it by these dirty, smelly, sweaty rags, sweat rags and aprons that came off the Apostle Paul. And I think what we see is that God was accommodating to some degree the superstition of Ephesus because this, this city was just inundated with magic and superstition. And uh, God probably, well, He obviously chose to accommodate possibly their superstition in order to validate and confirm Paul's message and Paul as a true apostle of God. Now God is sovereign over all this. Paul was not in control of the miracles, when they happened, how they happened, what God would use. That's all under the sovereignty of Almighty God. But God just chose to do some of these extraordinary miracles. Now there's a lot of... uh, This has kind of launched a whole ministry uh, today with a lot of the charlatan uh, apostle wannabes. Like you can go online and, and you can get these uh, anointed prayer cloths. Well, that's kind of like the handkerchief. That's, that goes back to the handkerchief. And you can go look on Benny Hinn's website. and Not that I go there very often. But you can, he'll, he'll send you a little 3 inch by 3 inch prayer cloth <clears throat> that has been personally anointed and prayed over by Pastor Benny. And, and if you send in your money, you'll get one and it'll help you get your miracle. Or Billy Burke, another guy, never heard of him. Same thing, only he had a little motto. He said, your need moves God's heart, but your faith moves God's hand. Well, how does your faith move God? Well, you got to release your faith. Well, how do you release your faith? Well, you send in money to our ministry. That's how you do it. You release your faith and that will move the hand of God to give you the miracle that you want. Paul, I doubt Paul approved what was going on with these handkerchiefs. He definitely wasn't doing it for money. You weren't, they weren't sending him money and then he would loan them off a handkerchief or whatever it would be. And you can just see how much of these things are being abused today within the religious circles of our own day. Again, I doubt the Apostle Paul would have ever approved this. Now, the application, of course, God can do whatever God wants to do. No, no doubt about that. But uh, these are certainly amazing miracles. I think the application is that doesn't mean that God's going to use your dirty laundry to bless somebody else. But if you do somebody's dirty laundry, you're going to bless them for sure. So God bless all you mothers and people who work in... in uh, and washing dirty clothes. But I think that the key lesson here is that God took the common everyday implements and tools and skills and abilities of the Apostle Paul to be a blessing to other people. In other words, He took the means, the tools of His vocation to bless other people. And I think the application for us is to realize that when God has given you a job, no matter what kind of job that is, that there are implements, there are things that you do, there are objects, there are opportunities to discuss and talk and be a witness of Christ to other people. That you can take your dirty handkerchiefs and your aprons and they can become a platform for ministry to other people. Not that we're looking for miracles today, but that God can use what you do as a means of reaching out as a witness of Jesus Christ to those around you. 
And this is the exciting, I think, application to look at your work, your so-called secular work, which is really sacred because it's God-given if it's lawful and legal, and use it as a means of ministry. Because that's exactly what was happening with the Apostle Paul. Not only was his work providing for himself uh, financially when others were not assisting him uh, with gifts like the church of Philippi did in Corinth, but it was also an opportunity for him to, to use the everyday objects around him or everyday opportunities just to be a witness for Christ. And of course, there's a lot of miraculous things going on here. But it's kind of neat that our work should be viewed as a means of sacred opportunity to uplift Jesus Christ in His name. So look at your work that way. And again, it may not be your handkerchief or your apron, but it may be time that you spend, you know, you go to the, the coffee bar or whatever it might be, or you're outside and you're working, you run across another uh, vendor of some kind or another neighbor or whoever it might be that are common everyday events of life God can use as a witness and a means for making the name of Christ known. And the fact that he used a handkerchief and an apron, the fact that these are nothing special in and of themselves shows how special and how great is God's grace that He can use those things to bring great blessings to other people. So let us look at our work in that light. Lord, what is it that I do that You can use as a means for spreading the name of Jesus Christ? Of course, this came, these objects came from a man whose heart was sold out and committed to the Lord Jesus. And really, that's the more fundamental question. Is it your desire to serve Christ, to honor Christ, to uplift Christ with everything you do at work, at home, at play, with all of your recreation, with all that you do? Is it, is it mindful that I want to live under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ? See, that's the kind of person who the common everyday uh, objects around them or opportunities around them can be used for the Gospel of Christ. So it really comes back down to the character of the heart of the person. And what we do when we're at work. Do we bring up the name of Christ? Do we look for opportunities to encourage and be a blessing to other people? And the Apostle Paul certainly had that heart. And he challenges us to do the same. Well, in contrast to the triumph of God's grace through Christ over the curse, over diseases and over demons, now we see the opposite. We see how impotent the counterfeit ministries were in that day. And so we read in verse 13, but also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, so they were itinerant exorcists, Jews, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. So basically, again, to remind you of the context, magic was used throughout the Roman Empire to try to heal those who were sick. And the most successful exorcists were those who were thought to know the names of 
powerful spirits that they could invoke. A lot of times these were secret names. And they would invoke those names to control the lesser spirits to do their will. So the whole industry of magic and the arts revolved around these magicians or these exorcists storing up a secret repertoire of names that they could use to help cast out demons. Secret names of different gods or spirits. Now obviously they did this for profit. They're not out there just doing it from the goodness of their heart. They're out there to make money. So they're healing others and compelling the spirits to do their bidding. Not again just to be nice, but because this is a business to them. Just like it is today. It's a business. And they're doing the same thing. So the the exorcists were always on the lookout for the latest fad, the latest successful formula of a name that they could use to make their business more profitable. And obviously they were willing to pay good money to get the secret name of some spirit or some god that would help them make money uh, off of that. And it was also common in the mix to have Jewish priests and their uh, hand up, if you will, their, their, uh, their superiority is that they supposedly knew the secret name of the God of Israel and how to pronounce it. You remember all the Jews, the typical Jews, were not allowed to pronounce the name of God. It was sacred. They couldn't even speak the name. But these Jewish priests supposedly knew the name and they knew how to pronounce it. And that gave them a leg up uh, over a lot of these uh, spirits and demons in the spirit world. So with that in the background, now enter the seven sons of Sceva. Verse 14. Sceva was a Jewish chief priest. At least that's what he claimed. He probably got his credentials from a mail order catalog or maybe out of a Cracker Jacks box. I don't know. But he claimed to be a a Jewish chief priest. And that would mean his sons had special status, power in their practice. And the fact that there were seven of them probably lent some additional mystique because the number seven was very uh, popular as a symbolic number. So all of that together, these guys are going around looking for the next gig. And obviously, uh, they have heard apparently the Apostle Paul And they have heard him invoke the name of Jesus Christ and some of his healings that he had done. And so they're trying to do the same thing. And there are other Jewish exorcists, verse 13, apparently involved as well. But Luke kind of zooms in on these seven sons of Sceva. So they come up and they're going to, they come up to a a man who's demon possessed and use the same formula in verse 13 that the others did, where it says, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now notice, uh, again, there's just a little bit of a problem in them using that formula. When Paul used it, of course, he had a living, vibrant relationship with Christ as his Savior and Lord. 
these guys do not. Uh, They don't know Christ in any personal or saving way at all. They're just borrowing that name from Jesus. They probably got it free because they didn't even have to pay money for it. They heard Paul using it and they remembered it, so now they're going to use it. So they're just parroting or mimicking what they had heard. They're using the name of Jesus in a second-hand way. So they were not prophets of God, but they were definitely after prophet. And again, it was a business transaction, so why not? So they come up to this guy who's demon-possessed, and they say, again in verse 13, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And then they probably went on to say, you know, get out of him or whatever it is. But obviously, they don't know the Lord at all. Now, by the way, this is kind of a recipe for superficial Christianity. Speaking to all the kids that are here this morning, you grow up in a Christian family, you hear the name Jesus Christ many, many, many times. And it's easy to pick up the name and use the name in a second-hand way just like these guys were doing without truly, personally, knowing the Lord Jesus as your Savior and as your King. Don't be one of those people. There's no advantage. There's disadvantage of using the name Jesus Christ if you do not know Him. So you are a sinner and you need to know Jesus Christ. You need to be forgiven of your sins. You need to repent and put your faith and trust in Him and Him alone. And may God open your heart and give you that faith to do that. But these guys were using the name of Jesus without knowing Jesus. And again, that was a huge problem. To use the name without submission to Christ, without trusting Christ for salvation, is a false profession. And sometimes it happens within the church. Paul will write a letter to Titus. And in chapter 1, he says to Titus that there are those in the church who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. And John will later write his, his revelation from the island of Patmos after he was exiled from Ephesus. And when he writes his letter to the church at Sardis, he says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you are dead. You have a name. You think you're a Christian. You call yourself a Christian. You you speak the name Jesus, but you're dead because you really have never come to put your personal faith and trust in Him. So it it happens. And it's happening with these uh, Jewish exorcists and particularly these seven sons of Sceva. Well, the demons can smell a fraud in a second. And that's why the name of Jesus will not protect anybody unless you know Him personally. So the demons respond in verse 15, and the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? Now obviously, notice how Luke describes him here, and I guess it's just one. The evil spirit. Those demons 
are evil. They are nasty, evil spirits. And if they ever get a toehold on your life, they will drag you into nastiness. This is what they do. Evil. They want you to succumb to evil. That's what they do. That's their character. And so Luke appropriately calls them as they really are. They are evil spirits. And notice what they said. They said, I, I know Jesus. And do they ever know Jesus? They know Christ. I mean, remember back in Matthew 8, when Jesus was casting out of a demon, and the demon cried out and said, what business do we have with each, with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know one day Christ will judge them. They know He's the Son of God. They know who Jesus is. And this demon says the same thing. He says, I know Jesus. And he says, I'm familiar with Paul. That's the nuance of the word. I know about Paul. I'm familiar with him. I know Christ. I'm familiar with Paul. But who in the world are you? You're nobody. You're a fake Christian. You're a counterfeit. You're using the name of Jesus, but I know you don't know Him. Who in the world are you? You have no authority over us. You're misusing the name. There's no power in the name of Jesus when it comes out of your mouth or your lips. Who do you think you are? And the demon shows no respect to these fake exorcists. And now notice there's one demon-possessed man against seven sons of Sceva. And the seven were outnumbered. They probably should have done more workouts with MMA training or whatever. I don't know. But this this one demon, this one man, demon-possessed, is energized with a supernatural strength. And he jumps on these seven sons of Sceva. And notice what it says. He leaped on them. He takes the initiative don't think that the demons are just standing around just you know, waiting for something to happen. They are on the prowl. Remember, Satan is like a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. No, the demon, man, he jumped on the seven sons of Sceva. I mean, we live in a world where these evil spirits, they have their eye on us. And we need to be sensitive to that. And of course, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, would later, when he writes to Ephesus, tell him about the armor of God. You need to put on the armor of God every day because the battle is real. So he leaped on them. They initiated the attack. They will come and insert those nasty, filthy thoughts into your mind. They will come and expose you to things you shouldn't be exposed to. They will do anything they can to ensnare and entrap you in some kind of an evil. So they initiated. They leap. He leaped on these seven sons. And then notice it says He subdued them. Verse 16. He subdued all of them. That means He dominated them. He brought them into subjection. And then it says... In verse uh, 16 also, He overpowered them, which basically just means He beat the tar out of them. 
I mean, he jumped on them and just beat them up. So much so that he ripped their clothes off of them and was bashing them so that they fled wounded. Cuts, bruises, knots on the head. I don't know what this guy had. But I bet when they got out of that house, they said, hey, let, let's don't do this again. Because, I mean, they were severely thrashed by this one demon-possessed man. He, he beat all of them up and injured them. Now, why, why is Luke telling us this? <clears throat> why does he include these kinds of stories? There's always a purpose. The Spirit of God always has a reason. And I think one of the points is that Luke is contrasting the ministry and the power of the Apostle Paul in the name of Jesus Christ. Healing sick people, casting out demons, you see power in the name of Christ. But what about Judaism? What about the gifted, the elite, the sons of the chief priest of Judaism? By way of contrast, well, it's Ichabod. The glory has departed. There is no power. There is no grace. Judaism now is typified by these exorcists as being spiritually impotent, powerless. They can speak the name of Jesus, but it will do them no good because they don't know Jesus. They've rejected Christ as their Messiah. And the power of God, the grace of God, the victory of God has shifted from the old covenant Israel to the new covenant Israel, the church. That Judaism is now left behind as an impotent religion with no power to overcome Satan. Again, they've rejected their Messianic King. They've rejected the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And they're left holding on to a covenant that will only condemn them. It pointed them to Christ and they turned away from Christ. So they're now holding on to a covenant that they have rejected the grace and now they only cling to the condemnation. And I think in part, this is the contrast that the Spirit of God wants us to see. The powers with Christ. The powers with the Gospel. The powers with the church. It's not with Israel anymore. They're impotent. They're without power. And I think that transition is put on great display in this passage. Well, in verse 17, this became known to all both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus and fear fell upon all the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. So again, the story started spreading. Everyone started hearing about it. And was actually used by God to magnify the name of Jesus Christ. They see the power in Christ. They see the failure of, of the Jewish exorcists. And they began to marvel about how great the grace of God and the glory of God in the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we come, verses 18-20, through 20, to back to the triumph of the name of Christ and God's grace over the occult. And in verse 18, many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone 
And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now again, uh, Ephesus was a center for magic arts and the occult. And many of the people that were coming to faith in Jesus Christ were coming out of that background. Ephesus uh, contained a very large supply of documents that contained spells and magic formulas and charms and incantations used in the worship of Artemis and the other gods. And they actually have found references to what was called the Ephesian writings. Remember the library I showed you last week? Maybe they were kept in there. But Ephesus was renowned for a, a depository of all of these magic writings and books and formulas and incantations. It was a storehouse of magical scrolls. And many of the young believers coming into the church, that was their background. They had been involved in the occult and magic. And notice what they do in verse 18. That many who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. So many of them, many of those who are in the church had observed again what had happened and seen Sceva's seven sons being so uh, embarrassed. And they still had some of these magic arts deeply woven into the fabric of not only the city of Ephesus, but in their own lives. They grew up with it. This is a part of them. And we don't easily leave some of those trappings of our past right when we get saved. Uh, But they began to realize that, as the Old Testament taught, that the occult was evil, that they must separate themselves from it. So they were coming, verse 18, confessing their sins, disclosing their practices in the the magic arts. Now, F.F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar on this passage, said, according to magical theory, the potency of a spell is bound up in its secrecy. If it is divulged, it becomes ineffective. So notice what they're doing in verse 18. They're disclosing their practices. They're bringing it out in the open. They're confessing that they were using this name and this incantation and this formula. They were disclosing it, which according to the mindset would render it ineffective because of the secrecy was such an important part of the power of the spell. But they were disclosing it. They were confessing it publicly, neutering the power of the spell. But I think what we learn from this passage is that these were believers who were doing this. Because in verse 18, many of those who had believed were coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. So again, I think the principle that we see is that sanctification is oftentimes a gradual reality in our life. People get saved and they're kind of like Lazarus. They come out of the tomb, they're alive, but they're still, they're still bound up in those death cloths. And it takes time for those things sometimes to be unraveled. Now some people when they're saved, they have a 180 degree turnaround. With others, they're, they're fighting these things. It becomes an issue of gradual sanctification. And I think we certainly see that here at Ephesus. 
They were saved, but they were still clinging to some of their old practices. They hadn't totally let go of them yet. But as the grace of God is working, and the grace of God is, is leading them in sanctification, they gradually begin, begin to, to see the light and realize, I've got to separate from this. So what they do? They had this tremendous book burning in verse 19. They brought all of their, all those who had practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them. The price was 50,000 pieces of silver in today's currency. I mean, we really don't know. The, the <clears throat> Some say that one piece of silver was the amount of a day's labor. So let's just say if a day's labor for a common laborer is $100 a day, and you have 50,000 of those, and you come up with about $5 million, it's a lot of money. But notice what they did. They didn't go back and give the books away. They didn't go sell them to infect others with this same disease, this same spiritual virus, but they burn them. Now, this is no average book burning. I mean, it's not like um, what happened to Tyndale's translation of the Bible or Luther's translation in English and German, respectively. Or what the Nazis did in World War II where they burned all the books they disagreed with. No, this is not a burning of censorship or a burning of, well, in a sense, condemnation, but it's a burning of repentance. It's, it's a burning of the books that were, had such a vital impact in their old lifestyle, their sinful, occultic lifestyle. They're going to break that connection. They're going, to, they're going to totally do away. They're going to burn it to ashes. Get it out of their life, whatever is required. And I think what we see in this passage is really an important principle of how to deal with those besetting sins, with those addictions that sometimes come into our life. And that is a principle of radical removal. Radical removal. And I think these guys are a great example. This had had a strong part of their life when they got converted. As God began to work in their life, they began to ultimately see that they had to disconnect themselves from all of that magic, all of those spells of their past. And the only way to do it is we got to get all of our books and all of our scrolls and all of our secret formulas and we're going to make a huge pile of them and we're going to torch it and we're going to burn it to ashes and totally get rid of it. Radical removal. And I think that's a principle that we need to implement today because you cannot play with temptation or sin. You cannot play around with it. It'd be like drenching yourself with gasoline and think, oh, I'm going to go play with matches. And before you know it, you're set on fire. You have to get rid of it. It's like Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 9, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. Don't pluck it out and stick it in your pocket. Pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's better that you enter life with one eye than to have two eyes 
and to be cast into the fiery hell. Radical removal means to put off the old man. It means to flee youthful lust. Put distance between you. Get away from it. Don't go near the house of the adulteress. Come out from their midst and be you separate. Radical removal. Now, the reason why this is so important today is because it's so easy to become addicted to stuff, isn't it? I mean, think of all the things that people get addicted to today. Internet, shopping, food, entertainment, sports, money, porn. And if you read the, the uh, statistics of, of porn in the church, it, it's a huge problem. But the method is you don't play around with it. You engage in radical removal. You've got to shut down the avenues to get back to it. And I've been reading a, a book and he says in it that people look at porn when they have the desire to see it, the time to look at it, and when it's available to you. So you take away the availability. That's one of the key steps in overcome, overcoming any kind of an addiction. Whatever it takes to get it away from you, so don't go into that store where you might buy it or go on the internet or the phone or the computer or wherever the, where the temptations come from. Now, it can be a gradual sanctification thing. I mean, these things are easy to say, hard to do if you're wrestling with it. But the point is, you don't just keep it close, you separate it from yourself. Now, I was uh, reading recently one of the classic pieces of literature of all human history in the um, children's book, The Frog and the Toad. Y'all ever had the children's book, The Frog and the Toad? Oh well. Let me tell you about one of them real quick. The frog and the toad were good buddies. The toad made a batch of cookies that were just killer cookies. So he wanted to share them with frogs, so he took them over to frog, shared the cookies, and they were so good they couldn't stop eating them. And so they thought, man, we got it. We just got to stop at some point. So what do we do? Well, let's let's put them in a box, and that'll stop it. And a few seconds later, they realized, well, we can just go over and open up the box and get the cookies. So they kept eating the cookies. They said, look, we got it. We got to do something more. Well, let's put them back in the box and tie a string around it, and that'll that'll stop us. Of course, the more they looked at it, they went over and untied the string and of course got back into the... And then they tried the top of the closet. Well, of course, then they just went back to the closet and got the cookie. And then they thought, well, we've got to do something. What are we going to do? They said, well, let's feed them to the birds. So they finally fed the cookies to the birds and got rid of the cookies. And then the toad thought, well, now that the cookies are gone, I think I'll go home and I'll bake a cake. Which means he just switched one addiction for another because ultimately his heart wasn't changed. I think what we see in this principle is that ultimately when it comes to getting away from a temptation to a sin, to a sin, it requires some type of radical removal. And it was costly. I mean, that was five million bucks worth of books that they just destroyed, but it was a sign of their repentance. It was a sign of their desire 
to get away from the sin. And they saw that those books as a danger to be killed, not to be coddled. So if you're wrestling with something in your life, and we, you know, it's easy to develop an addiction. I mean, it could be a lot of stuff. For some of y'all, it's that little piece of plastic you carry in your billfold or your purse wanting to buy everything or whatever it might be. There's all kinds of addictions. But remember what they did. And I think the, the sound biblical principle is that idea of radical removal. And that expressed their repentance, their desire not to let magic have an influence on their lives anymore, but to live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to live under His reign and His rule. And it's well worth praying and fighting that battle. And it can be a tough battle. It can be difficult. It may take time. Sanctification is gradual. But the point is, this is what the grace of God enabled them to do. And God can help you do that as well. God can help you to be separated from that besetting sin in your life. And that's the encouragement may not happen today. It may be something that's going on. But God's grace is greater than all of our sin, right? That's, that's one of the lessons I want us to take from this. Well, in wrapping up this section, remember that God can use common things in your life as a means of grace to bless other people. He can use the aprons and the handkerchiefs of your vocation, of your work, your tools, your chores, your labor at home, your labor at work, people you meet to open doors to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And let us seek to live out our faith and to be used of God as a means of blessing to other people. Remember also that sanctification is something that's gradual. It's something we may fight for long periods of time, but that ultimately grace will triumph. Grace will win. Grace is greater than all of our sin. It abounds over our sin. And we may not totally, we're certainly not going to become perfect in this life. We're not going to become sinless in this life. But God's grace is gradual and it can separate us from sin. It can give us grace to live more for the glory of Christ. So that ultimately it's the name of Christ, it's the power of His grace through the Gospel that gives us triumph over all of our enemies. And as we seek to walk with Jesus Christ each and every day, then God can use the common things of our life and give us an opportunity to lift up and magnify the name of the Lord Jesus so hopefully others will come out by the grace of God from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His light. And may God use you and me to that end. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank You that although we continue to live in this world of whom Satan is still the God of this world with a little g, and we know, Lord, that our faith and the church is continually under attack by the enemy. We thank You that the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ who is building His church. That no matter what sins we may be wrestling with, no matter what defeats we've experienced, that there is more grace 
And there is abundant grace that can do extraordinary, miraculous things in our life, Lord, if that is Your will. But we thank You that our hope and confidence is not in our strength, but it's in the power of Christ. It's in the greatness of His name. Because it's His name that ultimately will triumph over all of our enemies. So Lord, encourage us to fight the good fight. Encourage us and empower us to live for Christ. We pray in His name. Amen.